0: Alright, I'm going to start today by inviting you to imagine with me a spectacle, the likes of which rivals scenes from epic films like Star Wars or Lord of the Rings. But the event we're going to imagine doesn't reside in Middle Earth or in a galaxy far, far away. It comes from a particular time and place in ancient history. Imagine you live near the ancient city of Rome during the era of the Roman Republic, a period of time in which the line of kings in the city of Rome has been overthrown, and the expanding territory of Rome is ruled by a senate and a council of magistrates who work with military leaders to expand and defend their state. You live perhaps towards the end of this roughly 500-year era, maybe around 100 BC. And today is a day of celebration as the city celebrates a new conquest, a new city or region that's been captured, a new war that's been won. The city, the whole region does this by celebrating the victorious military hero, the general who's led the victory in an event that the Romans call the triumph. A triumph was awarded by the Senate who paid extravagant sums to put the spectacle on. And if you were a general, it was the ultimate honor to win the award of a triumph. It's a very rare honor. Only the most accomplished of heroes was given it. Usually it meant you had led your forces to victory in a battle that ended a war, killing at least 5,000 enemies and conquering new land for Rome. To pay tribute to this conquering leader, Rome would organize this event, this extravagant victory parade that they called the triumph. The parade would begin outside of the city and it would gain steam as it headed up the hill and towards the city gates. If you were on the sidelines watching the procession approach, the first thing you'd see would likely be the dignitaries, the the big political leaders of the nations, the magistrates, the senators, they were in front. They led the parade decked in all their finest garb. Following them would be the presentation of the newly conquered people. Perhaps their civic or military leaders were now paraded presented to the people of Rome as prisoners, the fruit of the conqueror's labor. The parade continues to advance as musicians, singers, actors fill the procession, giving voice to the glorious military victory they have come to celebrate. More spoils of war might be presented, animals, cultural treasures, and so on and then there is the victor, the one the triumph is in honor of. The victor approaches the capital city in a fantastic chariot, festooned with laurel branches and pulled by four magnificent horses. He's clothed in the royal purple and gold tunic and toga. He holds a laurel branch in his right hand and an ivory scepter in his left. The imagery is intentionally royal. Though the Republic does not have a monarch, the victor in a triumph is considered the king for the day, closely equated to the gods. As you see the victor, you'll probably hear the shouts of the people around you saying our English translation, Hail, O Triumph! The parade processes up the hill, through the gates into the city, winding through the streets of Rome until it reaches the temple of Jupiter. Once he has arrived at the temple, the victor presents his laurel. He presents various sacrifices and makes them to Jupiter's image. The prisoners of war are publicly executed in front of the throngs and then a fantastic feast for all the dignitaries present commences. Now this picture I've been inviting you to imagine is definitely from another time and place, from another world in many ways, one that likely feels pretty foreign to us as if it could be in a galaxy far, far away, especially after a year of social distancing, right? But though none of us have been to a Roman triumph, likely we have experienced spectacles of some sort ourselves, albeit hopefully ones with less glorification of violence. Perhaps we've been to a huge sports event. Think of the opening ceremonies of the Olympics or or a victory parade after the warriors clinch another championship. Perhaps it's participating in an event like pride as a number of us have done together, marching through the streets of San Francisco or Oakland celebrating our LGBTQ community. Maybe it's at a protest, being a part of a major act of civil disobedience, occupying an interstate or engaging in a sit-in to draw attention to an issue of injustice. Perhaps you've simply watched an event like the presidential inauguration particularly in years where the National Mall has been filled with people. They are standout events. They're not everyday occurrences. And the spectacle of the event, the particular things that are celebrated, the actions that are undertaken, they communicate something about what's valued, what's special, what is to be remembered. Well, I start with this conversation about large scale spectacle because today is the beginning of Holy Week, a day in the church calendar generally called Palm Sunday. This is the last week of Lent, the week that we remember the tumultuous final days of Jesus's life and the events leading up to his death and the resurrection we honor on Easter Sunday. And as we're gonna see in the stories at the heart of the Palm Sunday tradition, The last week of Jesus's life begins with spectacle. As we draw near the end of the journey we've been taking together this series, we've been looking anew at the stories that sustain us. Today, I wanna invite us to consider this particular day of action and spectacle that Jesus undertook at the beginning of the last week of his life and wonder together what it meant. How might understanding this story, this Palm Sunday story at the start of Holy Week, bring something sustaining to us? Now, I'll be honest, I've generally not been a big fan of Palm Sunday. (laughs) Perhaps it's the cynic in me who can easily focus on like the bitter irony of the day. I mean, I grew up in churches in which the kids processed down the center aisle on Palm Sunday, waving palm branches and singing. But even then, to me, you know, as an eight-year-old, it seemed strange because even as Jesus was welcomed into Jerusalem with this, his own festive parade, you know, we all know where the story is going. It can be hard for me not to roll my eyes at this joyous crowd, knowing that the same folks who are crying, Hosanna! Hosanna! are gonna be whipped into a different kind of frenzy by Friday. The adoring throngs become the murderous mob calling for the lynching of the one they just welcomed. So how can we not roll our eyes at it all? But this week, as I've been pondering this story, what it might have for us that could sustain I found myself drawn to pushing past my cynicism at the crowds and their fickle faith and wondering what the day meant to Jesus himself. What was it about for him? The truth is that if these Jesus stories are to be believed, Jesus himself knows what's coming during this fateful trip to Jerusalem. He's been making that pretty clear to his followers though they don't really want to hear it. He knows where this whole Jerusalem journey is going, but Jesus undertakes the trip anyway. And as he does it, he seems to lean in with intentionality around how he's enacting it. So with that in mind, I want to take a fresh look at the Palm Sunday story as Matthew relates it. And wonder together at what Jesus was communicating through those meaningful actions. What deeper messages might he have been sending? How might those messages be important for us to receive today? So with that, we'll read together. April, you can go ahead and share the text from Matthew 21, starting with verse 1. Now, when they approached Jerusalem and came to Bethpage at the Mount of Olives, Jesus sent two disciples telling them, go to the village ahead of you. Right away, you will find a donkey tied there and a colt with her. Untie them and bring them to me. If anyone says anything to you, you are to say, the Lord needs them and he will send them at once. This took place to fulfill what was spoken by the prophet. Tell the people of Zion, look, your king is coming to you, unassuming and seated on a donkey and on a colt, the foal of a donkey. So the disciples went and did as Jesus had instructed them. They brought the donkey and the colt and placed their cloaks on them, and he sat on them. A very large crowd spread their cloaks on the road. Others cut branches from the trees and spread them on the road. And the crowds that went ahead of him and those following kept shouting, Hosanna to the son of David. Blessed is the one who comes in the name of the Lord. Hosanna in the highest. As he entered Jerusalem, the whole city was thrown into an uproar, saying, who is this? And the crowds were saying, this is the prophet Jesus from Nazareth and Galilee. Then Jesus entered the temple area and drove out all those who were selling and buying in the temple courts and turned over the tables of the money changers and the chairs of those selling doves. And he said to them, it is written, my house will be called a house of prayer, but you are turning it into a den of robbers. The blind and lame came to him in the temple courts and he healed them. But when the chief priests and the experts in the law saw the wonderful things he did and heard the children crying out in the temple courts, Hosanna to the son of David, they became indignant and said to him, do you hear what they're saying? Jesus said to them, yes. Have you never read out of the mouths of children and nursing infants, you have prepared praise for yourself? And leaving them, he went out of the city to Bethany and spent the night there. All right, so here again, we have this story of pomp and circumstance, a story of enacted spectacle. But what exactly is being enacted? What's Jesus trying to say with the various actions he's undertaking? What traditions is he in dialogue with? And how might his actions communicate what he wants those he encounters on that Sunday to remember. What do you think he hopes when they all tell the story of what happened? The folks who hear it will understand. Christian tradition generally refers to this main event as Jesus's triumphal entry. And the very name that the event has been traditionally given speaks of some of the resonance it has historically with the other spectacle I've been describing this morning. Understanding a bit of that cultural background of the Roman triumph provides some helpful context for us with what this event is, what it might have meant to those who were lining the streets that day as well as those in villages and cities throughout the Roman Empire who heard the story as the Gospels were beginning to circulate in the early church throughout the Roman Empire and beyond. But the Roman triumph only gives us some of the relevant context for appreciating what Jesus is enacting here. Of our four Gospel writers, Matthew is known to be particularly concerned about his Jewish audience. He wants those who share his culture and history and faith to understand how deeply Jewish Jesus is and how much in line he is with their traditions and their sacred hopes. So our storyteller takes extra care to communicate the context for this event that's coming from within the history of Israel itself. Remember, Jesus and his followers, they were some of the conquered people who had been brought under Roman rule. As the Jewish people of Israel, they had their own traditions and hopes for the future rooted in their sacred texts and their culture. The prophets had long been the voices of Israel's hope, calling the Jewish people to remain faithful to Yahweh even in the midst of seasons of trauma and oppression, calling them to look up towards times of deliverance and salvation that they believed God would bring. Now the last of these voices recorded in the Hebrew Bible came from a prophet named Zechariah. Zechariah had lived and prophesied in the wake of a season we've talked about a lot this year, the exile. He was the grandson of a priest who had been in Babylon and returned. He had, he, Zechariah was born and raised in the community that was trying to rebuild after the trauma of exile, but was still very much struggling. The people in his day were dispirited and divided. The temple was in ruins. They did not have the resources or the energy or the vision or the manpower it seemed to rebuild it, and so it was overwhelming. It's a season I think a lot of us, after a year of pandemic life and its many casualties, might be able to relate to. And in that season of Israel's life, it was hard for the children of Israel to imagine a way forward or even believe God was really with them. And into that moment came Zechariah, this prophet whose name meant the Lord remembers. And he spoke his fresh words and visions from the divine. And these words and visions served not just to rally the people in his time to go ahead and come together and rebuild their temple and their community, but they also looked towards a future coming of God's anointed. One who would bring real freedom to their people. In the midst of his descriptions of the coming of this anointed one, this Messiah, the one who would bring liberation to the people, he envisioned him thus, your king comes to you triumphant and victorious as he, humble and riding on a donkey, on a colt, the foal of a donkey. Now this wasn't the first image of a king on a donkey. In Jewish history, other parts of Israel's sacred texts spoke of kings like Solomon, who would generally ride horses during times of war, but they would mount donkeys instead during times of peace. Zechariah imagined a future anointed leader coming in that same peaceful way. His words, along with the words of the prophets like Isaiah spoken, you know, spoke hope through these seasons of oppression, whenever the people of Israel found themselves conquered by their neighbors, fighting for their freedom, even as the Roman Republic expanded and became an empire, swallowing them up inside of it. And these messianic hopes, these hopes that God would indeed send an anointed one who could bring deliverance, These were especially potent during the season of Passover, the time in which Jesus and his friends alongside much of Israel came from throughout the countryside to gather in the city of Jerusalem. This is why the city's teeming with people to greet Jesus that day, Passover, was near. The Passover celebration was one of several festivals that throughout the Jewish calendar that brought the people together to remember, to gather their story, their history, to honor their heritage, to worship the divine in their day as they did. And this particular festival remembered God's deliverance when their people were in bondage it celebrated how the divine had acted in history on behalf of their ancestors to free their people from oppression. So like Jesus, that Sunday morning, people came throughout the land to enact this festival together in the capital of Jerusalem. And each year during the pilgrimages that the people went, days heading to Jerusalem, and throughout the festival itself, there were certain songs Certain songs that part of our psalm book that were sung again and again. Songs which after centuries of singing and influenced by the words of prophets like Isaiah and Zechariah had taken on new layers of meaning. So these songs not only communicated the prayers of of the people's ancestors like their great King David, but they also communicated the hopes for God's anointed to come, they sang them with the hope for the son of david the next david one of these songs that was commonly sung during the passover commemoration we know of as psalm 118 hosanna the people sung in the words of this song in our translations it probably says save us which is what hosanna means save us o god Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. So what does all this background mean to our story? From the beginning of our passage, when Jesus directs two of his disciples to go to a certain village to find very particular animals, to say to their owner, the Lord has need of them, it's clear Jesus is intentionally enacting a series of events. This is not simply like a spontaneous parade, even if it might've felt that way to many in the crowd that day. But Jesus means for this entry at the beginning of his last Passover visit to Jerusalem to be significant. Nowhere else are we told that he rides an animal to go anywhere, everywhere else he's walking. But now Jesus wants to enter riding a colt, the first sign that something different Is happening. We don't know who the first folks are that throw their cloaks in the road or gather palm branches, another ancient Israelite symbol of honor for one who brings deliverance. We don't know if as the people begin to stream towards the road, the crowds are aware of the subversive nature of what they are doing. You see, in Rome, triumphs are for the victors alone. In Jesus's day, when the Republic has has become now an empire and the project is no longer conquering more land, but maintaining the empire and the emperor, triumphs are now reserved for the emperor or his family alone. But here, a different kind of king is being honored in a triumphant procession. It is an act that the Romans could consider seditious. This leader comes though not on a steed of war or on a magnificent chariot but on a lowly beast of burden. This leader, this inaugurator of God's alternative kingdom comes not to cries of hail triumph but to please rooted in messianic hope crying Hosanna son of David save us. This parade moves from the outer landscape into the city towards the religious center, just like the Roman triumph does. This parade moves to the temple, but with different aims in mind. Jesus enacts that day his own spectacle, one that blends and resonates with elements of his Jewish tradition, as well as the Roman empire, his people have been harmed by. And the traditions come together and speak a symbolic message. What is the message? At its heart, in enacting a spectacle that draws from both of these traditions, I believe Jesus is communicating something like this. Jesus is God's anointed one who comes not to conquer, but to save. I'll say it one more time. And if you wanna, you can put the slide up. Jesus is God's anointed, one who comes not to conquer, but to save, to bring freedom, liberation. The Roman triumph is about dominion. It's a triumph that at its heart celebrates violence. But Jesus is not here for violent dominion. It's quite possible many in the streets who are cheering misunderstand that. They don't understand his intent, and they're bound to be disappointed when he doesn't lead an armed rebellion against Rome. But Jesus is enacting a countercultural kind of leadership. He doesn't believe that the salvation, the true deliverance that people are crying for, can be secured through the conquered simply switching roles and becoming the conquerors. He actually intends to expose the futility of that kind of retributive violence. And in a few days' time, he will, as he surrenders himself to those violent urges of both the representatives of Rome, as well as some of his own Jewish brothers and sisters, the violent urges within all of us, the desire for vengeance within all of us. But here, as Jesus enters the city presenting his vision, declaring himself a king of a different kind of kingdom, he resists the glory of Rome by offering an alternative kind of glory, one rooted in peace, shalom, wholeness, well-being, connection, life, humility beauty, the singing of children. He's not come with a demonstration of power that demands submission, but with a humility that brings freedom. Sadly, the history of our faith has not always reflected Jesus's subversive alternative style of leadership the heresy of Christian nationalism has been with us long before our present moment. We might see its origins in the moments roughly three centuries after this Jesus's triumphal entry. When the Roman emperor converted to Christianity And before long, the Christian faith was declared the official state religion of Rome. And since that time, we've become all too familiar with the glorification of violence and imperial dominion spread throughout the planet with a cross on a flag, flown out in front of the war chariots or the warships or the tanks. We have seen white supremacy claim the Christian faith as its own and distort it for its own purposes as it does with everything white supremacy subsumes into itself. But this is not what Jesus himself was enacting when he declared his model of leadership His is a rejection of coercion and supremacy. Jesus comes not to conquer, but to save. What does that saving work look like? How is he bringing this freedom? I think there's a lot of answers to that, but I'm going to end with one that we see here in this story. And it's found in the second spectacle that Jesus enacts one that, as Matthew tells it, seems directly connected to the entry in Jerusalem. Jesus cleanses the temple. Remember that the Roman triumph always hit its climax at the Roman temple, where sacrifices were made to Jupiter, prisoners were executed, and the politically powerful and connected celebrated the victor. Well, Jesus also processes directly to this temple for a climactic set of actions, but it's a different set of actions he has in mind. Let's be clear, he's confrontational. Coming in peace does not mean coming without resistance, but Jesus's resistance is not an act of aggression aimed to terrorize everyone who watched. It's an act of confrontation meant to bring freedom and restoration, particularly for those without power. You see, it's early in the week of Passover. This is a time when pilgrims often need to purchase the animals and materials they're gonna use for their sacrifices that week. But what had begun as a set of spiritual practices, meant to bring life and connection to the divine, has become corrupted. Greed, profit, the extraction of wealth have become core drivers of the activities in the temple. And this exploitation of a community's worship does not represent the kind of kingdom Jesus is anointed to bring. And so he resists it. He turns over the tables. He throws the money on the ground. He drives the capitalists out of the temple courts. And as he is, doing this, all of this. He's communicating a deeper aim, a way I believe he is bringing the freedom there. He is saving them. And that's this. Jesus comes to confront our corrupt systems and purify our spiritual traditions. He comes to confront our corrupt systems and purify our spiritual traditions. When Jesus drives out the vendors and the money changers, he quotes two different prophets. One who depicted what the temple should be, and one that named what corruption of the temple looked like. The prophet Jeremiah, who spoke God's judgment before the coming exile, describes practices that people in his day were doing in the temple that were corruptive and, and exploitive. Do you think this temple I have claimed as my own is to be a hideout for robbers? Jeremiah asked them. You would better take note. I have seen for myself what you have done, says the Lord. Now Jesus is standing in the footsteps of that prophet, and he's calling out what's happening in his day to be the same as what God had rejected centuries before, which in their tradition was connected to why there was an exile at all but he also quotes Isaiah calling upon words that were first spoken during the exile that followed Jeremiah's prophetic call out. These were words of what God wanted to rebuild, what the temple was meant to be. In that text, Isaiah gave a vision of all the people who had been rejected by the powerful in Israel. He described the eunuchs the eunuchs and the foreigners who had been told they could not worship in the temple in Israel. And Isaiah imagined a new reality when those who had once been rejected were brought in. This was the vision Jesus was adopting. And quoting from Isaiah, I will bring them to my holy mountain, Isaiah says. I will make them happy in the temple where people pray to me. Their burnt offerings and sacrifices will be accepted on my altar for my temple will be known as a temple where all nations may pray. This is what Jesus is here to do. He doesn't simply drive the money changers away, that's act one, but then he immediately begins to heal in the temple courts those who would not have been fully included in worship because of their physical impediments, there in that very moment, they are welcomed in and included as Jesus restores them and brings them life. The corrupt systems that had controlled people and kept many of them out were being transformed in real time. Again, we know the church has developed many of its own corrupt systems. Likely many of us have been harmed by them in ways we know and also in ways we're unaware of. We have seen the focus shift in many spiritual communities from cultivating spaces that connect human beings with the divine heart and one another to controlling behavior and drawing boundaries around who is in and who is out. But Jesus comes to confront our corrupt systems and purify our spiritual traditions. So what tables might he turn over in our churches today? What systems might he confront in our own tradition, even in our own haven community? How can we be open to this challenging work? so that we too can participate in the rooting out of corrupt systems and the purifying of our spiritual tradition so it brings not coercion, but freedom. Friends, as we draw towards the end of this exploration we've been undergoing together of stories from the life of Jesus as we've been exploring them against the backdrop of events that continue to trouble the world around us. Acts of domination and violence, often led by people who also claim to confess faith in Jesus. I have to be honest. I found myself at times looking at the church looking at our faith, looking at myself with some of the same cynical spirit I have looked at Palm Sunday worshipers with. Is this all just hypocrisy? Is there anything real here that brings life and beauty and connection with the divine? They're legitimate questions, even I am wrestling with. And then I look at Jesus turning water to wine, but only letting the servants know. I look at Jesus coming to his followers in the midst of stormy waters and inviting Peter to step out of his boat. I look at Jesus revealing himself in a unique awe-inspiring way on that transfiguration mountaintop. I look at Jesus weeping in pain with his beloved friends, Martha and Mary. I look at Jesus saying no to the triumph of Rome and the greed of the capitalists and saying yes, to the cries of the children. And I find something that gives me hope, something that calls me forward, something that sustains. So as we enter this holy week, that's what I'm gonna end with, inviting you to consider where you are longing to see corruption rooted out. Spirituality purified, deliverance extended. What is the save us cry we need here and now? What is the messianic hope we are longing for? How might Jesus be coming in peace to speak to it? As we ponder the stories of this week, may we experience anew Jesus's invitation to himself, one who has come not to conquer us, but to save. Amen. Amen. We're gonna move now into our breakout room and we'll do that for yeah we'll do that for about 15 minutes um and so let me before we go there i'll go ahead and give you some questions to think about what contrasts do you see between the triumph of Rome and the triumph of Jesus? How might Jesus contrast himself to some of the demonstrations of power in our day? That's one you can think about. Or where do you see corruption in our spiritual traditions? What might Jesus want to purify here today? So those are some tough nuts to think about or whatever else is on your mind. as we have this conversation, so we'll go ahead and extend some um, extend those to you invitations. As always, you're also welcome just to hang out in the main room, and in 15 minutes we'll come back and uh, finish our service.